Welcome to the Thrive Theology Podcast. I'm Emily. And I'm Bethany. We're two Christian women who aim to be grounded in the Word and understand how it applies to our lives. We're passionate about making Christian theology accessible for every woman and equipping others to seek an intimate relationship with Christ. Stay tuned as we dive into today's topic. Welcome to another episode of the Thrive Theology Podcast. This week, we are doing part two of our conversation with Bob Beasley about his experience with um, the Eastern versus Western cultures and how that applies to scripture and how we read that. Um, We're going to go a little bit deeper into the individualism versus collectivism culture today, which we're pretty excited about. And let's get into the episode. Uh, so we've been talking about honor, shame in the context of uh, David and Bathsheba and Nathan, and uh, and that's Old Testament and Hebrew scriptures, and certainly gives a an interesting cultural context uh, from that perspective. But um, when we're talking about the New Testament, uh, we come forward here uh, uh, quite a few hundred years, centuries uh, later, uh, we run into Paul in prison. All right, so here we have again potential shame because uh, there's no shame like being in prison. Even though he's in prison for the gospel and for preaching Christ, he's still in prison. So that's not a good thing. It's a shameful thing. Even in our, in our um, guilt and forgiveness culture, there are things that bring shame uh, to a family, and certainly having someone in prison does that. And so uh, we, we read here, uh, Paul writing to, uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy, and we, we run into some really interesting uh, verses and teaching uh, in the context of uh, the honor shame, which would have been a very much a part of the culture. So in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is writing, and Timothy is uh, acting on behalf of Paul, who is in prison at this point. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 1, when you begin uh, verse 8, he says, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Now, that's interesting. Do not be ashamed of me as a prisoner. And shame is so clear here because he's in prison. And he said, rather join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, think about this for a moment. In the honor-shame culture of the day, Timothy is acting on behalf of Paul, who is in prison. He's preaching the good news of Jesus, who died on the cross. You see all the way through here, shame, he's in prison, shame, death on a cross, is filled with things that in the culture are shameful. But Paul, as the kingdom of God always does, redefines honor and shame, capital punishment, which was in that day, the last word in shame, he goes on to talk about being uh, resulting in the most glorious event in all of history. In fact, if you go back to 1 Timothy 6, 16, you see here honor. And uh, it says uh, back in verse 15, about talking about Jesus, uh, to keep his command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see or can see, to him be honor. 
and might forever. So this Savior, the Lord Jesus, who died in the epitome of shame in a culture that is all about shame and honor on a cross, now is the one who is to receive all honor. And so the kingdom of God does what the kingdom of God always does. It turns the principles of this world on its head. It turns the principles of the honor-shame culture on its head. So the one who was tried and found guilty, although he was innocent, uh, went to the cross and died of the epitome of shame on a cross. Uh, and by the way, this is interesting. If we, we, we see these pictures of, of, the, of the three crosses up on this hill somewhere. Uh, and we, you know, the old hymn that talked about there, there is a, uh, there's a hill there that we call Gethsemane and, uh, and we call it mountain. We, we picture the crosses way up high somewhere with the sky in the background. And that's the picture we often see. The reality is that crucifixion took place very, very close to where people were. So it is quite likely that where Jesus was crucified is, is now a Palestinian bus depot just outside of Jerusalem, uh, if in fact that's where he was crucified. It's, it's, we don't know, but a lot of people think it's right beside the, the garden too. Because that road that is now uh, where the bus depot is for the Palestinian people is on an ancient thoroughfare coming into Jerusalem uh, where, where people would walk by. And, and the whole point of crucifixion was shame. And so you wouldn't put it way up high on a hill somewhere where people would have to look afar to see it. You'd put it right beside where they were walking. And so it would be right beside the road, right there, by the road where people were. They could walk by and, and you know, the Romans crucified thousands of people. But you could spit on them and throw stuff at them and mock them and make fun of them. And it was, it was complete shame. And so, so this cross, was the, it was shame. Now we wear as the symbol of honor. Uh, isn't that interesting? That the kingdom of God has turned the whole honor-shame culture on its head. And that which brought shame to the Lord at the time, now is what brings him the honor that he deserves as the king of kings. So uh, it's just interesting how Paul says, don't be ashamed of me in prison. Uh, don't be ashamed of me for the gospel. In fact, the one who took the shame, we now honor. So I'm in prison, and I, I'm, I'm honoring the Lord by being here, not bringing shame to him. Interesting. That's so interesting that you talk about the cross there, because growing up in the church, you know, every Easter, you know, you get shown like a pa like a clip from the Passion of the Christ or something like that, and I was never able to really stomach it. And all I really think of when I see images of Jesus on the cross is, ouch, like, when we talk about it, we talk about it primarily as a means of torture. And of course it was, it was excruciating. It was horrific. Um, but we don't think about it from the context of shame. We just think of like, man, that's like the most painful way to die. We just think about it from this like pain context and not that it wasn't about that, but we don't think about the public humiliation necessarily, at, at least not at first, I don't think. And so it's really interesting that you bring the cross into it and yeah, how it's now, something that as Christians, we're proud to bear this symbol, which, you know, 2000 years ago was 
like you wouldn't, you wouldn't put that anywhere. It was, it was awful. Right. Um, and so now it's, it's really interesting how that's just been redeemed by the gospel and the work that Jesus did. Completely. And so, and, and now we've, we've, we think of it as an honoring thing. We, we wear the cross to honor the one who died for us, or we, you know, we put a cross on a, on a church as a symbol uh, because we honor the one who died for us. And, uh, and, and, and unless you live, though, in an honor-shame culture, you can't grasp that. But those who do, uh, it, it's a profound uh, thought that that which was shame now has become honor. And, and only God can do that. Only the Lord can do that. Take what was the greatest symbol of shame and make it the greatest symbol of honor now. Only God can do that. And we miss it in our, in our simple sin uh, forgiveness culture. So I was invited to an Easter service at a, at a different church um, one year. I'd gone to my own and then I went to theirs too, because why not? Um, and they had this really neat practice of they have this wooden cross at the front for the service of Easter Sunday. And they have like wires wrapped all around it. And everybody brings flowers, like cut flowers. And then you flower the cross. So you take turns filing up through and you like, you shove the flowers in through the wires. And by the end, yeah. like you can't even see the wires anymore. You're just shoving it behind other flowers. And it's just, I think that was the first time I had seen people go quite that far in bringing beauty to the cross. Oh. Because yeah. normally it's just like very simple and plain. And we use that as the example, but like they, they do this flowering of the cross and they've done it for years. And like, so everybody comes and everybody has a fistful of flowers and it's just really, really beautiful. I like that very much. And I, that's a perfect illustration of what we're talking about right now. Yeah. Where, you know, the, the, that which was shame has now become something of beauty. Oh, that's, that's, that's gorgeous. Yeah, well, it was neat because this year, of course, they couldn't do it in, in the sanctuary. So everybody did their own. So they would like put up the two sticks in the shape of a cross and they would put their own little little flowers on it. And they were sharing picture, pictures all over. It was just, it was really, really neat. It's a church in Lynchburg, Virginia that does it. Oh, nice. Good. Yeah. Ah, that's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Oh, nice. gone quite a bit further than we were expecting in the honor shame and especially pulling it out of the scripture um we would love to teach or help people to understand how to study it more do you have any tips for studying the shame honor perspective in people's own private study i love reading the bible different ways uh at different times through different lenses uh and so um how we consciously read the bible changes uh, the perspective by which we see the bible and so, uh, for example, uh, uh, somebody said to me a number of years ago, uh, the, the Gospels are Jesus' training manual in disciple-making. And so next time you read the Gospels, read them through the, through the lens that uh, Jesus is teaching. Everything he says is teaching. Everything he does is specifically for these 12. And so, you know, don't focus on the miracles, although you're going to see the miracles. Focus instead on uh on what is jesus teaching his disciples in this so picture them standing around while jesus does the miracle and and what are they learning well that just changed my whole view of the gospels 
Same thing with honor, shame. Uh, read the scripture, uh, try to put yourself into the context, cultural context of honor, shame. And you will, you will see things as you read through scripture that our brothers and sisters in the global south and east have seen for years that we have missed. Because as I read just even those few verses that, that talk about honoring the Lord or um, uh, honor Nathan saying, why did you despise or why did you dishonor God? in this. Uh, we often haven't thought of that before. We read over that word and it doesn't grip us because that's not how we think or react. And so uh, if we read them though through the lens of honor, shame, and you purposely do that, uh, you will pick up things that you've never noticed before. I have a question just um, to hop back to what we were saying about honor and shame. We talked quite a bit about shame and what it meant to not be ashamed or to like bring about conviction of sin via shame. But something we haven't really talked too much about is the concept of honor. So something I just thought about as you were talking is the commandment that says to honor your father and mother. And I don't know about Bethany or even yourself, but growing up when I went to Sunday school, the one way you honor your parents is by obeying them. (laughs) And that is really about like, and then a lot of people even just translate that as saying like, obey your father and mother, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but is the concept of honor bigger than obedience? Is it not? Is that what, what would honor your father and mother have meant to the Jewish people when those, um, when that law was given? Uh, the, the, the a perfect picture of this, I was, this came to mind as I was praying through preparing for this conversation was uh, Jesus at uh, the uh, wedding at Cana. Uh, there's two aspects to this, by the way, that are, are pretty profound. Uh, one of them has to do with Nathaniel, uh, the disciple, uh, and the call of Nathaniel, which in every gospel is right before the wedding in Cana. Uh, and again, this has to do with the whole uh, culture of the, of the day. They're not individualistic culture, but, but that corporate culture, that collective culture. Um, when we read the story of the call of Nathaniel, to follow Jesus, all right? And you might remember the story Philip has brought, said, come and see, and Nathaniel comes, and he's sitting, and, and, and Jesus goes over and knows him and knows all about him, and Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Uh, and Jesus said, I, I knew you before you were sitting under that fig tree. Uh, you know, I, I, I've known you your entire life. Uh, now, uh, Nazareth, where Jesus is from, is 12 kilometers from Cana. And so it's close. And so everybody's there. And when I was, I was preaching at, a, at an Egyptian church in Mississauga not long ago, and I was dealing with this, this subject. And I said, in the culture of the Middle East, when there's a wedding, who goes? And, uh, and, and uh, a, a lady put up her hand and she said, everybody. I said, the whole village goes, right? The whole place goes, she said. She, I said, it's very different than here. She said, oh, very different than here. She said, when there's a wedding, the whole town is there. So I said, at the wedding in Cana, who would have been there? Everybody. I said, okay, so the whole town is there. All right, so Nathaniel is called, all right, and the next story in all Gospels is the story of the wedding in Cana. So I thought, well, why is that? That's, you know, because not all are chronological. John's isn't chronological all the time. Why is it, though, chronological here? And, and this has to do with the collective thing and the honor-shame thing and Nathaniel is now a follower of Jesus, and you don't understand it until you get to this one verse 
way, way, way later in John chapter 21. And I was reading this one day, and I love when the Holy Spirit turns on the light bulb when you're reading the Word of God, because it says, it talks about who was present in John chapter 21. It said afterwards, this is following the resurrection. Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, and I went, holy cow, holy cow, all these years I didn't get this, and now I get this. Nathaniel from where? Cana. So what does Jesus do in every gospel? The chronology is there. You're a follower of mine. I'm taking you to your hometown. We're going to go together. Now I'm going to honor you before all the people, including my mother, bless her, who's going to be there. You're now my follower. See, Jesus always takes us first when we follow him back to the people who know us the best. And that's honor and culture. That's this honor culture. I'm going with Jesus to where they know me, to my family. Everybody in town is there and everybody from Nazareth, apparently, because Mary's there. Anyway, so, so then this conversation happens. This, the whole picture is filled with this honor thing. Uh, and, and so Mary is there, and Jesus, she comes and she says to Jesus, turn that water into wine. Now, I don't know how many of you have watched The Chosen. It's an amazing, uh, you need to watch. Download the app from the app store, whatever you got. Download eight episodes, first season is done. Best cultural and uh, it, this fiction involved is extra biblical. Uh, but that, there's a long tradition of that. But, but, but the, the story of Jesus and the miracle at Cana is the best I've ever seen portrayed. And Jesus is here, and Mary says, turn the water, you got to see the, in this episode, turn the water into wine. And, and he said, it was not my time. And Mary just gives him this wonderful look, like, I'm your mom, right? <laughs> Can you do this for me? You know, and so, so we picture it as um, obey, obey, obey. In the context of the culture, it's honor, honor, honor. You know, my mom asked me to do something for her friends. The whole village is there. This is not obedience. It's cultural. It's honor. I'm going to do what my mother wants because in that cultural context, it, people do care what the other people think. And what, how you treat your parents before others, the attitude you have, it's more than obedience. It's the way you treat them. It's the way you speak of them. It's the way that you, you honor them. And so I see now, as I understand honor, shame, and that culture, that, that this was when, when, when Jesus did what his mother asked him to do to turn the water into wine. It was more than just obeying her command. It was showing her honor in the midst of the entire community in which she was. This was her life. She was a Nazarene, 12 kilometers away, uh, in our context, just up the road. And so she had walked to the wedding. She was there. And, and the Chosen shows it so well with all the people that knew everybody. And the culture is amazing. And, and there is Mary, and Jesus is honoring her. And, and 
you'll see that, that, by the way, that's the context, the honor shame thing, the honor thing is the context of the comment by the host of the wedding that most people, most uh, that have, they serve the best wine first. And then when everybody's had a little bit of wine, then they serve the worst wine. But you, and you see, you got to see this context in, in, in the chosen. It's beautifully portrayed. The, she, the, 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 the mother of the, of the bride just, just beams when, when the, uh, the, the, the host says, but this couple, they've served the best wine. And the whole place just, oh, my goodness. Like, look at the honor of these people. So Mary is honored by this. The, the family is honored by serving the best wine last. Oh, my goodness, the whole picture culturally is filled with honor. So it's way more than obedience. It's, it's really, uh, it's, it's like walking into all of your best friend's place where there's a party going on and your dad or mom show up and you put your arm around them and you walk them into the middle of the party and you say, this is my mom. And I love her, and I honor her in the midst of all of this. That's what honor is, way, way more than obedience. That's really interesting. Um... I think part of this kind of clicked for me just as just recently, really, I was thinking about how I was raised. My parents um, were really good at instilling um, respect in me and my brothers growing up. That was, my dad was very intentional. He's like, no, you need to respect us. And something I was thinking about is how like when you're a little kid, you obey your parents because you don't want a spanking or whatever. <laughs> you don't, mm-hmm. you don't want to be disciplined. Um, so it's yeah. like out of, out of fear of, of your parents, that like healthy fear. Um, but then you get older and I think this may even be more true for, um, boys as they grow up because they get to a point where they're physically bigger than their parents, maybe. Um, Oh yeah. I have a son who's uh, four inches taller than me. Right. Or, and especially their moms, right? Like, oh yeah, yeah. He's a foot um, taller than his mom. Yeah, exactly. And, And there's this point where, but they'll still obey if, if they've been, um, raised to do so. Um, and at that point, it's not so much because they fear their parents, but because we actually respect our parents. And it's, um, you get to a point, like I got to a point where it was like, okay, I'm now, you know, I was like 21. I moved home from college the summer before I got married. And it's like, you know, it's hard to be back under your parents' roof. And my mom would ask me to do something and I'd obey, not because like, I thought I like had to, um, but out of that respect and, and love for you. So there's like this point of maturity where even if you haven't been raised in that collectivist culture, you have this, you reach this point in your life where you respect your parents for who they are, what they've done for you. And then now that obedience is coming out of, out of that place instead of a place of, um, fear. And I think it's the same way in our relationship with the Lord. When you first maybe become a Christian, if you really have a good understanding of who God is, you 
sometimes obey out of like fear or you resist obedience and he, you know, convicts you in a certain way, but eventually you'll get to this place in your relationship with the Lord where you're obeying just because you love him. And just because, just because he's just been so good to you. And it's like, how could I do anything but do what he asked me to do? Right. So it's really interesting to see, like, even though I wasn't raised in this really collectivist culture, I'm about as North American as you can get. Um, we all, Yeah. But, you know, just reaching that understanding of like, there comes a point in my spiritual life as well, where I'm obeying the Lord because I want to, it doesn't mean it's always easy, but it's coming out of a place of desiring to glorify his name and bring honor to him instead of just, you know, I don't want to sin. Yeah. 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 I have a wonderful illustration of that. Uh, It's it's just, it's not a true story, but I did hear the story of a a wife who was married to her first husband. And he was a bit of a, a tyrant. And uh, he, when they got married, he gave her a list of 25 things that he expected her to do. Here it is. And he posted them all over the house. And, and for the first number of years, she did everything that, uh, according to the list. And she, she came to despise it. And, and, and uh, he, after they were married a number of years, he, he actually uh, got ill and passed away. And, uh, and so uh, she got rid of all of those. She thought she got rid of all of those posted lists of to-dos. She fell in love with this wonderful man who treated her like uh, she deserved to be treated. And after they'd been married for a few years, uh, she found one of these old lists at the bottom of a drawer. And she took it out of the drawer and she read it. And what blew her away was that she was doing everything on that list for her second husband and not even realizing she was doing them. That's the difference between doing something out of obedience and something out of love. And it makes all the difference in the world to how we see the Lord. If we see him, as you spoke about Emily, as this tyrant God who just is commanding us to do all these things, we're eventually going to come to the point where we despise him. And, uh, and, and that has happened, unfortunately, in churches and to Christians who have been taught and perceive God that way. It is not who the God of the Bible is. Um, every command he has given, he's, he's almost without exception, a couple of exceptions in the Bible, but almost without exception, every command comes with a promise of his equipping, of his love, of his grace, of his, oh my goodness. And, and so, uh, I, I mean, you've come to a, a, the point where we all need to be as Christians, that why do we walk in obedience to Christ? Because we love him, because of what he's done for us, because of what he's accomplished on the cross. And when we, when we respond to him that way, we don't even notice we're living a life of purity and holiness. It just is because because he loves us and we want to live this way and we find great joy and peace in this. And I just, I just ask forgiveness of those who've been taught the other God and who have hardened their hearts towards him. That is not the God of the Bible. And I'm sorry you've been taught that uh, because the God of the Bible is a God of love and grace and calls us just to respond um, to honor him and to love him back. That's all. And so living the Christian life becomes one that is uh, still challenging because we're a world of temptation in a fallen world. And we do fall, but, but uh, one that um, is, is a walk of grace and joy in the Lord. 
It was so interesting when you went to John chapter one, because I'm actually teaching John right now um, to some high school girls. We have a little Bible study and I'm teaching on Philip and Nathaniel on Thursday. Well, that's perfect. Yeah, I was like taking copious notes. Yeah, but you'll notice uh, through that, that this happens a lot with Jesus where that like, for example, uh, when he goes across the lake to the area of the Gadarenes, it's called Kersey now. And the, the, the demoniac, uh, well, uh, when he's set free and, you know, the demons go into the pigs and run off into the Sea of Galilee. Uh, at the end of the story, after it's all over, the very end, kind of the epilogue, uh, the, 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 the formerly demon-possessed man comes and says, I want to go with you. And Jesus said, no, no, you got to go to your hometown. He's from Decapolis, one of the Roman cities nearby. And so he goes, and that's where he goes, because Jesus always sends us to where people know us the best when he first calls us. He, see the transformation. The people who know us the best will see the transformation that Jesus has made. So before we can be the missionary to win the world, we've got to go home, right, and let people see the difference that Jesus has made in our life. And you'll see that sprinkled all the way through. As I said, when you see the Gospels through the lenses of a training manual, Jesus is training his disciples then all of this stuff comes alive. So that's a common principle in Jesus' ministry to call those who he's called to go home first before they go anywhere else. Well, this seems like a good place to land uh, this episode. Thanks so much for joining us. Would you be up for joining us for another episode um, to talk about um, how the Eastern and Western cultures um, think about the spiritual realm as well? Would love to, anytime. This This is a lot of fun. Great. And there we go. That's the end of our episode with um, Bob Beasley, our two-parter. You can find the first part, um, which was released last week, so it would be, you know, the previous episode. Um, we had a really fun time talking to him. It's kind of neat because I've known him for a really long time, but he's actually a, a giant in the missions Bible world. So we had a really great time talking to him. Um, you can find it on our website at thrivetheology.com. We've got all of our social stuff. We've got blogs. Be sure to subscribe. You can rate us. You can review us. Tell all your friends. I'm sure they're looking for more things to listen to during this COVID time. Um, yes, we are still recording in quarantine because we're staying safe and keeping people safe. Um, we are looking forward to talking to you next time. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.